is uh, Luke, the Gospel of Luke, chapter 5. We are continuing a series this morning um, called On the Mission. Now, this is week four, uh, talking about uh, the idea being that if we want to see God do what we hope to see God do in us and through us here at North Park, we have to embrace God's mission that he's called us to, that he's called every local church to. And the way we've been phrasing that in this series is we are, while we're here, is, is we seek to glorify God by helping people trust and follow Christ through worship, community, and mission. And those core values there, those shared convictions that should unite us in what God's called us to do of worship, community, and mission, we have, uh, we have been walking through the last few weeks. Gospel-fueled worship a couple of weeks ago, gospel-shaped community, and this week we're talking about gospel-advancing Mission, Because as we make disciples, as we help people trust and follow Christ, we want to see every person uh, that we have opportunity to influence and minister to here at North Park engaged in gospel-fueled worship, encouraged through gospel-shaped community, and also equipped and empowered for gospel-advancing mission. So today as we talk about advancing the gospel, living on mission with Christ, um, we need to wrap our mind around the idea that the gospel is good news that is meant to be shared or declared. It's news of what has been done. It's not advice. It's not, it's not some form of self-help. It's a declaration of something that has been done in the past already, been taken care of, that we are to go and declare forth. And that is the mission that we have here at North Park. And we know life is short. Uh, eternity is real. And sin deserves judgment. And Jesus saves, and that in and of itself is enough for us as we leave and go out of here. Here at the end of our service today, we enter the mission field. Now, the church, as we're going to talk about today, is not simply called to think about ourselves, right? And how we can comfort ourselves, strengthen ourselves, bless ourselves, um, serve ourselves, minister to ourselves. Our decisions here at North Park cannot be driven by comfort. We cannot, they cannot be driven by security and personal peace. That every decision we make has to be filtered through the mission God has called us to and the truth that we are called to reach people, people in our community, people in our neighborhoods, people here in Ballin Park and in Orlando. And reaching people requires risk, and it requires sacrifice, and it requires bold action. It may require us and it may require you and me to do things that we haven't done before, things outside of our comfort zone, doing things that are different. To reach new people, you've got to do new things. To reach different people, you've got to reach different things. We must be willing to boldly act and risk and sacrifice for the sake of taking the gospel to our neighbors and to our friends and family and to our communities if we're going to be a people that reaches people. Now, in the Gospel of Luke, chapter 5, we see a picture of Jesus on mission and someone who joins him on mission, all in these verses we're going to read, verses 27 through 32 this morning. And as those who are trusting and following Jesus, we are called to, to follow him on mission. So we're not just following Jesus in terms of behavior patterns. We're following Jesus in that he's invited us into a particular kind of life, and part of that is, is the mission that he's on, the mission of seeking and saving the lost. So I want us to look at this passage this morning, Luke 5, 27-32, and learn how we can better join Jesus in gospel-advancing mission. So look with me at the Gospel of Luke, chapter 5, verse 27. It's on the screen for you this morning. I'm reading from the English Standard Version. After this, he, that's Jesus, went out and saw a tax collector named Levi sitting at the tax booth. And he said to him, follow me. And leaving everything, he, Levi, rose and followed him. 
And Levi made him, made Jesus, a great feast in his house. And there was a large company of tax collectors and others reclining at table with him. And the Pharisees and their scribes grumbled at his disciples, saying, Why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? And Jesus answered them, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. So this story here is the story of the conversion of an enlistment of Levi, or you might call him Matthew. Same story is told Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And Matthew, he's referred to Matthew, and Mark and Luke, he's referred to Levi. Many people in that day had two names that they went by. And so his name was probably Matthew Levi or Levi Matthew or some version of that. And so we see him referred to as Levi. We see him referred to as Matthew, one of the original 12 disciples here. And this is his story, right? And what immediately followed his coming to Christ. And we have a story here of Jesus calling a sinner. And not just someone that we would say is a sinner because we believe all people are sinners, but someone that his particular culture would have considered a particularly bad sinner in their mind to follow him. And then we see what happened to this sinner, this Levi, as he began to follow Jesus. And in these verses, I think we learn from Jesus and from Levi what it looks like to live on gospel advancing mission. And so life of gospel advancing mission. So I want to show you three things about Jesus from this and the implications for us from this passage. First of all, I want you to see that Jesus pursues sinners, right? It's pretty basic. He pursues sinners. After this, he went out, sees a tax collector named Levi sitting at the tax booth and says what? Follow me, right? He, he goes out from where he'd been ministering and he spots Levi sitting at the tax booth doing what Levi did every day, right? <coughs> Collecting money from the Jews to give to the Romans, right? And Jesus looks at this tax collector and he says, I want you. To follow me. Now, it's most likely that Levi had already been in some situations where he had heard Jesus preach, heard Jesus uh, teach, and so he was one of these guys that had been kind of listening, and then Jesus goes and he calls him out and enlists him into the disciples. It's not just an all call, right? It's not a mass preaching event where Jesus gives an invitation, but and then some people come forward. This is Jesus looking eyeball to eyeball at one particular guy and saying, I want you on my team while he's sitting at the tax booth. And the eyes of his culture, let's put it this way, while he's engaged in his sinful activity, while he's doing what the people in that day hated and despised. What do you mean? Well, Levi as a tax collector would have been a hated man in his culture. Tax collectors in that day were generally crooked people. They, Generally speaking, they were dishonest. They had a reputation for taking, skimming off the top and, and, for, and, for, and for embezzling money and Rome was a godless, oppressive government, and Levi worked for Herod Antipas, who was a collaborator with Rome, collecting taxes. So here's a man that is Jewish, but he's likely lived a very sketchy life of stealing and cheating from his own people. And by association with the Gentiles through Rome and through Herod, he would have been hated for, taking, uh, for associating with the Romans, for being considered a, a cheat, whether he was or not, just because he was in a class of people that generally were. They would have viewed him as a traitor. So there are social reasons that he would be considered an outcast. But there are also moral reasons that he would have been considered that. He's likely, like most tax collectors, a thief from his own people. And we, we, 
we, we, we, we don't really know how to wrap our mind around that, but when you're, when you're kind of a people that kind of feel like you're living in exile, when you're kind of a people that feel like you're living under an oppressive government and that they've kind of taken over you and you've got one particular guy, uh, or several, but this particular guy who has no problem working with that oppressive government, that is a, that's just a, just a particular kind of hatred that bred within the Israelites in that day for tax collectors, Jewish tax collectors. And Jesus targets this guy for discipleship. And this is not a guy you'd pick for your team if you were a rabbi in that day making disciples. He's not going to gain you popularity votes. You're not going to win any like that. It's not like, oh man, Jesus, he just calls all the cool people. He's just trying to build this popular, cool little crowd of the healthy, wealthy, and wise so that he can go out and influence it. So everybody will want to join the, his little club of followers. No, he's going out, and the people that nobody would want to associate with, he's calling people like that to follow him. And enlisting them into his team. Because Jesus pursues sinners. All kinds of sinners. All kinds of sinners. And throughout Jesus' ministry, we see him pursuing these people. In John chapter 4, as we saw a couple of weeks ago, it's the woman at the well who had lived a morally compromised life. Jesus invites her to come have living water. In Luke 19, it's Zacchaeus, another tax collector, swindler, who admitted that he had stolen. When he comes to faith, he repents and giving money away and all that sort of stuff, making things right. And on the cross is a thief who's being publicly executed for what he's done, who Jesus tells him he can join him in paradise. Jesus was in the habit from the beginning of his ministry to his death on the cross of enlisting sinful people and also people rejected by society to come follow him, find life and purpose and forgiveness. Jesus is in the business of purposely going after, pursuing sinners. Now why is that? Well, Luke 19, verses 9 and 10, after Zacchaeus, the tax collector I mentioned just a minute ago, repents of his sin and becomes a follower of Jesus, we find this in Luke 19, verses 9 and 10. Jesus said to him, said to Zacchaeus, Today salvation has come to this house, since he also is a son of Abraham, for the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. Jesus gives us his purpose. Why is he reaching out to someone like Zacchaeus or someone like Levi? Because he's seeking and saving the lost. That's why he's here. That's why he's on earth. That's his mission, that's his purpose. And the call, he says, is to follow me, as he tells Matthew. You see that throughout the Gospels. Follow me. That is what Jesus asks every sinner, which is all of us, to do. Follow him. And this means we turn from our sin to him in faith. He becomes our Lord, our boss, our Savior. We look to him and him only for salvation. We begin to obey him, to pattern our life after him. We begin to become increasingly like him because we're following him. We are his students, his learners. And as believers, like we are believers in Christ, this is what Levi became. This is what he begins to do. He begins to follow Jesus. And like Levi, we're supposed to do the same. That's the implication here in Luke. And as a follower of Jesus, Levi knew what it meant to pursue sinners. Immediately. Right? We see it in the text. We're going to talk about it more here in just a minute. He has a big party about a bunch of sinners over. So it's, it's, it's immediately not just taught, it's called. Is he wants to become a fisher of men. Now, and as Jesus pursued sinners, his followers are to pursue sinners. That's Luke's implication. The attitudes and behaviors of Jesus towards sinners and outsiders should be the attitudes and behaviors of his followers towards those people. We are supposed to, 
to share the same behavior patterns, right? We're Just as Jesus pursued the lost and pursued sinners and pursued those far from God and pursued the socially outcast, so should we. And if we're going to follow Jesus, that means we will be committed to seeing the lost found. Found people, you might have heard it said, find people. That's what they do. Rescue people join the rescue mission. Early in Luke 5, we see Jesus calling the very first disciples and he gives them the same invitation. Follow me. In Luke 5, 10, it says, he says to them, do not be afraid from now on. You will be catching men. Because the first ones he called, they're out fishing. He said, I want you to come follow me. He said, don't be afraid. From now on, you're going to catch men. Mark 1, 17 records the same instance and says it this way. Jesus said to them, follow me and I'll make you become fishers of men. That's Jesus' promise. So in other words, part of following Jesus, it, it's, it's in the DNA of it. It's just part of it is you become a fisher of men. And how do you know? Because Jesus makes you a fisher. He says, if you follow me, I'll make you a fisher of men. Part of following Jesus is we begin to pursue sinners. We begin to fish for people, right? I've never been a big fisherman. But growing up, I used to go fishing with my grandparents a lot at this particular pond. They liked, to, they liked to go. There was this place where you could go fish a pond, raise catfish in North Alabama. And I remember a few of those trips. We would go 30 minutes or so away, go out to this, uh, this farm with all these ponds. And you had like four or five ponds out there. They had a bass pond, they had catfish ponds, all these different things. And we would go for a few hours and we would, you know, it had a limit, right? You catch or whatever, and then you, you paid for however many you caught by the pound and all that sort of stuff. Took them home, fried them up, all that sort of stuff. And I remember, you know, I loved it. I loved doing that. And sometimes you had to wait a long time before you caught a fish, but there was, just, there was just fun in just being out there. And people that love to fish will tell you that, right? Even if they don't catch anything, it's just kind of, they just like, like being on the water or being on the boat. Or in this case, I was on the bank of the lake, on the bank of the pond. But there are some things that you learn pretty quick when you're fishing that you need in order to be a good fisher of men or a pursuer of sinner, sinners, as Jesus calls us to be. Intentionality is one. You know, we, we never accidentally showed up at that pond when I was a kid with my grandparents. It never was kind of like, oh, look, we're just so happens to be we're at the pond. Just so happens to be we got some fishing poles in the back. Just so happens we've carved out four hours. Yeah, it was always intentional. So it was purposeful, right? We went fishing because we wanted to go fishing. That's, you, you don't just show, you don't wake up with a rod and reel in your hand on a lake. It, it takes intentionality. It's, it's purposeful. You plan and it takes intentionality to, to fish for people too. Yeah, sometimes opportunities just come before us, but usually we miss the opportunities around us because we have no intentionality. We're not looking for the opportunity. An opportunity comes and we miss it. We miss our opportunity. We miss our moment because our head's somewhere else. It's on a ball game or it's on a political debate or it's on something else that's going on. So the conversation goes there and an opportunity came up to move towards the gospel and we miss it because we don't live life with intentionality to fish for people. It takes intentionality to pursue sinners. It takes wisdom, right? When you go fishing, you have to know where. You have to know when. You have to know the right bait to use, right? There's, there's planning and wisdom that goes in that. There's a reason some people catch more fish than others. There, are, there is a such thing as good fishermen and bad fishermen. That's why some people do it for a living. There's wisdom involved. It's the same in fishing for people. There's wisdom involved in doing that. There's planning and purpose involved in doing that. Colossians 4, 5, the Apostle Paul says... Walk in wisdom towards outsiders, making the best use of the time. What's he talking about? He's talking about evangelism. 
And he said, as you live your life, walk wisely towards those outside the faith. Those that aren't gathering in your Sunday morning gatherings. Those that you're going to walk around and see in, in the supermarket and at work and in the neighborhood and at the school and those places. Walk in wisdom towards them, making the best use of the time. It literally means buying up the time. Stewarding the time wisely, making the most of it. He says in Ephesians, the days are evil. As I said earlier, life is short. Say, make the most of the time that you have. Be wise, to walk wisely, to buy up the time. You have to leverage every moment for the sake of winning people to Christ. Every conversation and relationship and moment, stewarding it for the sake of advancing the gospel so men, women, boys, and girls have opportunity to repent and believe. So Jesus can call them to repentance. It takes wisdom. Knowing when to say something and when to be quiet. When to listen and when to talk. How to approach a person. How to answer their question. It also requires some patience and perseverance, though. Right? Sometimes when you fish, you don't catch anything. Sometimes you stay for a really long time and don't catch anything. There is joy to be found, though, as I said, not only in the catching, but in the fishing. There's joy in just being in obedience. And just talking about Jesus to people. And we hope and we pray they respond. But worst case scenario, we got to talk about Jesus. There's joy to be found in that. It's, we have to have patience and we have to persevere. And Because as we share Christ with people, they don't always respond the first time. I heard a statistic one time that it's like the average person that comes to faith in Christ hears the gospel at least, I think it was nine times before they respond. Most of the people in this room, if we got to a lot of us, would say, I heard the gospel several times before I believed it. I did grew up in and around church for the most part. I was a teenager. For some of you, you were an adult. You were in and around it. Even as a child, you probably heard it multiple times before you believed it, before you gave your life to Christ. It takes patience. It takes perseverance. But we have to pursue sinners. And Jesus does that. He invites us to do that. It's part of following him. Secondly, Jesus welcomes sinners. And this gets into the very attitude we take towards the people that we say we are pursuing. Look at verse 29. Levi makes this great feast in his house. Large company of tax collectors and others are reclining at table with them. Why are there so many tax collectors and others reclining at table with them? Because Levi invited who he knew. And nobody else was going to hang out with Levi. Right? Other rabbis didn't hang out with Levi. The morally religious elite people, Pharisees and Sadducees, they didn't hang out with Levi. He was an outcast to his people. You know who hung out with Levi? Other outcasts. <laughs> other tax collectors, other sinners. And Mark tells us that these people had a habit of following Jesus. And in verse 30, the Pharisees and their scribes grumbled at the disciples saying, Why do you eat with, and drink with tax collectors and sinners? Why do you do this? It shows that Jesus took a different attitude towards sinners and outcasts than many of the people in that day did. Jesus chose to associate with people that needed God, whether or not the religious crowd liked it or not. He was welcoming to sinners, loving towards them, because he came to seek and to save the lost. In the very next verse, after Luke leaves everything to follow Jesus, we see him throwing the feast, right? It's, it's, it's literally the next thing that happened. It seems to be pretty immediate. A feast for Jesus where he invited what looks like his friends to, apparently. Tax collectors and others, it says. But then we get on down, we see they're called sinners. He invited those he knew. It's a scandalous scene. The disciples are apparently there. They are the ones that get addressed, even though Jesus takes up the answer to the question. They, they go after the disciples. 
They did that sometimes, especially if Jesus had kind of embarrassed them already with his response and kind of making them look, you know, foolish. Sometimes they go after the disciples. They go after the disciples. Why? Why do you do this? And so Jesus says, "Well, let me answer. Let me tell you why. It's, it's because it's, it's the very reason about why I'm here in the first place." But it's a scandalous scene to the people in that day, particularly the religious elite, because Jesus, as a rabbi, and these other Jewish men are eating with these people that you were not supposed to eat with. Eating at this time in the Eastern world was a very serious matter. It was a spiritual matter to them. This was this was a really big deal. We, honestly, it was such a big deal, I, I'm convinced that in our culture, we don't get this at all. We don't get it at all. To eat with someone was to show fellowship and extend friendship. It was a sign of acceptance. You were careful and you were strategic about who you ate with in first century Middle Eastern world. You weren't careless about it. It could literally ruin your life to eat with the wrong person. <laughs> You'd wreak judgment on yourself from the watching community of faith. And sinners here in this text conveys two types of people, probably, the scholars say. It would include those who had committed moral sins against God's law that everybody kind of knew about. Immorality and things of that nature. Prostitutes and such. Those that had lived sort of scandalous lives. It would, it would include those people. But it would also include people that were the outcast of society. People that that simply couldn't obey the Pharisees' laws. See, the Pharisees, as we've talked about before, they, they had laws they heaped on top of God's laws. So God had his laws, and then the religious crowd comes in and kind of says, now, in order to keep God's laws, you've also got to do these. So, so here's these things God wants you to do. Now, in order to properly do that, you've got to do this, right? And they added all this other stuff. And some of it was, was very, all of it was very burdensome, but some of it was even financially burdensome. And so if you were a poorer person, you just, you just couldn't do it. And you were just considered an outcast. So you've got people that are literally morally, publicly rejected because of their moral lifestyle. But you've also got people who are just kind of the disenfranchised and hurting in society. And they're all kind of lumped together in this category of sinners. Because to many in that day, there wasn't a difference over whether you couldn't keep one of the Pharisees' rules or whether you broke God's rules. Because they had taken the Pharisees' rules and exalted it right there with God's and above and one writer points out that just like when Jesus touches the leper, right? He wasn't supposed to touch a leper. We see in the Gospels, Jesus reaches out and he touches a leper and the leper becomes clean, right? Jesus doesn't become unclean when he touches the leper. The leper becomes clean when Jesus touches the leper. And in the same way, Jesus doesn't become unclean when he sits down with sinners. He makes sinners clean when he sits down with them and invites them to repent and believe. And by eating with these people, Jesus is risking his reputation. But he wasn't concerned with what self-righteous people thought about him. He was concerned with what his father thought. His father sent him to seek and to save the lost. Right? We, we have trouble grasping this kind of understanding of meals because in our culture, meals just aren't that big a deal. Like I mentioned earlier, the only time we really take meals very seriously is around the holidays. Right? So that's when we get really serious about it. And so we think about our Thanksgiving table or Christmas or something like that. And then there's a particular group of people we want to eat with. And some people will even kind of defend that, right? They want particular people there. And in fact, they get a little mad if particular people aren't there. And families fight over this stuff. Because that's the one time that the dinner table is taken very seriously. Because that's the only way I can kind of get us to wrap our mind around it is it's kind of, to them, every meal was like that and more so 
because of all the cultural and religious ramifications. These people were always very picky about who they ate with. And then here comes Jesus. He's not being picky. He's inviting anybody and everybody. He's showing up at parties, man, and he's eating with people at these big feasts. And he's sitting at a table with them, and hey, pass the bread. And he's passing it to somebody that they wouldn't even want to be near, and he's sharing a meal with them. Who is this guy? He's a, he came to welcome sinners to his table. He came to show people that to offer all people fellowship with him, with God, through him. He came to extend grace and forgiveness to everyone. Jesus came to invite all people to his table. Jesus' pursuit of sinners is not cold and detached. It's warm. It's cordial. It's loving. It's welcoming. He's not just making converts. He's making friends. He's not notching things on his belt. Well, I got another one to follow me. You know, the crowd's up to 3,000 today. It's not the way it is. He's making friends with these people. He's sitting around a table where he can hear their stories and they can hear his stories and they're being welcomed into an environment that they've never been welcomed into before. Let me just tell you, they had never sat down and had a meal with a rabbi before. That was weird. Rabbis did not do that. And here's one that's doing it. And listen, whenever people get serious about reaching people for Jesus, there will always be a self-righteous religious crowd that will judge them for it. If people judge Jesus for reaching people for Jesus, then people will judge the church many times for doing that. And there are things we can do that we can hide behind in the name of evangelism that are really just moral compromise. I'm not talking about those things, right? Missionary dating and things of that nature. That's not what I'm getting at. But the idea that we're supposed to be welcoming and inviting and strategically thinking at all times how our witness influences those outside of the faith and purposely planning to invite people in and to reach people and to be willing to, to rub shoulders with and shake hands with and hug necks with people that other people don't want to do that with, to invite people to our dinner tables that other people wouldn't invite, and to purposely and strategically think about how to welcome sinners into the church will always draw a raised eyebrow. And we have to be careful because sometimes, the people, sometimes it's us in the church that raise the eyebrow. And the longer you're in the church, the easier it is to go the elder brother mentality. Remember the story of the prodigal son? He goes far from God. Far, he's going, that's what the illustration is about. He goes far from his father. He asks for his inheritance. He runs off. He blows it all. He comes back. The father welcomes him lovingly. And the older brother who's been there, who's always been doing the right thing, so to speak, gets very angry and very upset because who in the you're disgracing yourself. You're disgracing our family by inviting this guy back in judging his father for doing this. And the longer, the longer we're in the church, pastors included, the more likely we are to become a little bit like the elder brother at times if we're not careful. Defending turf. Which is showing, as we know in that story, the elder brother's heart and the younger brother's heart were both far from the father. We, like Jesus, are to be a people that pursue and welcome people far from God. Levi caught on to this early, right? Immediately welcomed them into his home. He didn't have time yet to have Christian friends. Right? To become insulated by church. He knew tax collectors, so that's who he invited. And as Christ followers, we have a responsibility to have to welcome and a welcoming and loving attitude to those far from God, but we have to be careful that we begin to do that because we will become naturally insulated 
from those who are far from God. Have to be strategic. Like Jesus. Jesus didn't just go looking for people that were kind of like low-hanging fruit. Right? The tax collector was not low-hanging fruit. Hey, who, I'm looking for somebody that's looking for a good rabbi. Right? If you're looking for a good rabbi, you, you go to my website. and go, hey, If you recently moved to Galilee, you know, no, he, man, he's going to the hard places of the people that man, everybody would judge you for trying to reach this person. And that's who he's calling to himself. And that's who he's building his team with. And we're prone to focus on me and myself. We, we're natural tendency. People that are looking for a good church. People that just moved to the area that look for a good church. You're unhappy at your church? Come try my church. And listen, we want all kinds of people. Don't misunderstand me, but the point is this. Strategically, we're supposed to be thinking about reaching people that don't want to come to church. Sometimes I hear people say, people in this community, people in this neighborhood just don't care anything about church. That's the point. <laughs> yes. Amen. They don't. Neither did I. Neither did you. Apart from the grace of God, neither will you. Apart from the grace of God, you'll leave this church and never come back to any church. We are not better than anyone. We are the people who pursue and lovingly welcome people far from God and who care nothing about God because we were those people. Whether you were six or whether you were 60 when you came to faith. To Jesus, it didn't matter their socioeconomic status or their race or any of that. He pursued and welcomed all people to his table and offered them forgiveness. And we too must welcome those far from God, not just particular kinds of this means like Jesus, we got to go to where people are. And like Levi, we need to invite people to where we are and where they can meet Jesus. We've got to engage people, get to know people, life on life, inviting people into our lives, showing them the, the right attitudes and the, the right behavior, that we love them. How can we better invite people into our lives and into our homes as we seek to live on mission with Jesus? Our lives need to have windows for the unchurched and the far from God to peer into. We need to live in a way that we're not just pursuing them, but we're making them curious by how much we love them. Compelling them with our lives and our unusual concern. Let me ask you, what if each of us, what if everybody that calls North Park home, what if each of us purposely welcomed a neighbor into our home for dinner in the coming months? Somebody that doesn't normally come. A next door neighbor that you see when you get the mail and that's about it. Or a coworker that you sit across, you talk to here and there, but you never. What if we actually started inviting people into our home? What if over the next three months, 30 of us did that? That would be 30 new opportunities to, to love all neighbors. To let them peer into our lives. Sounds, sounds like trouble. Sounds kind of invasive. It's literally how the church was born. It's how they did it. They went into homes, invited people into their homes. They lived life on life. Corporately, it means hospitality for us matters, right? Individually, we're called to do things like that, right? To live hospitable lives. But corporately, when we come together, you know, this is kind of like our home where we're gathering people into. We've got the front door downstairs, and you're kind of in the living room in here. And we're kind of in, once a week, we're kind of inviting people to come in and uh, have this meal with us. They say a person decides whether or not they're coming back to a church in the first seven minutes on campus. That's the statistic. 
first seven minutes on campus. You haven't even made it to the elevator probably here or to the doors. You, you, might, you, might, you certainly haven't gotten a seat, heard a song or a sermon in the first seven minutes. Usually before any of that's been done. Much not, if not all of that time is in the parking lot, the front entry, and maybe childcare if you come with children. It means hospitality and first impressions matters a great deal because we want a welcoming environment in our homes, in our lives, and in our gathered assembly. Why was Jesus willing to risk and sacrifice his reputation, be talked about and sneered at by people that thought they were holier than them, even though he was the, holy, the only one that was holy? Why was he willing to pursue sinners relentlessly and welcome those no one else would welcome? Because he knew why he was here. He tells me, why do you do this? I know why I'm here. I'm here to, I'm, I'm here to call sinners to repentance. When we know why we're here, like Christ, we can relentlessly pursue and welcome people far from God. It's when we get distracted and our lives become more about us and our churches become more about us and what we want and desire that we refuse to risk, refuse to sacrifice and become content with not reaching people as long as we are happy enough. You cannot welcome without any personal change or cost. You can't do it. You cannot live a life of pursuing and welcoming sinners into your life and inviting them to come follow Christ as you follow Christ. You can't do it corporately as a body. You can't do it individually in our lives without personal cost. If it costs Jesus, it's going to cost you and me. It will mean discomfort. You cannot have the mission of God and total comfort in your life. Cannot be. How do you know that? Because our mission happens around a cross. A cross. It centers around a cross. A crucified, perfect man. A man who offended no one in the real sense, in the sense of actually doing something wrong, who came and lived a sinless life and was crucified as the plan of God for sinners. That... Our mission, that's the heart and the center of our mission is a cross, a crucified and resurrected Savior. Listen, it's, it's costly to live on mission. It will cost us personal comfort. Knowing your mission, though, is freeing. It frees us to take risks and to make sacrifices and to experience discomfort because we know we're not here to be comfortable. Jesus not only, though, He not only pursues sinners, He not only welcomes sinners, thankfully, Number three, Jesus heals sinners. Verse 31 and 32, Jesus answered them. Here's why I'm here. Those who are well, they have no need of a physician, of a doctor. But those who are sick, they are the ones who need the physician, the doctor. Verse 32, I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Why, Jesus? Why do you dine with sinners and outcasts? Because they're why I came. Jesus states those who have no need of a doctor, right? They don't, the well, the, excuse me, the well have no need of a doctor that he can't, in other words, I came to save the sick. I've, I've come to the sick. He, he's making an analogy here. It's, it's very brief, but don't miss it. He is, he is in, a, in a sense, implying that the world is sick with sin. I don't think he chose that illustration on accident. Sin is like a sickness. It progressively gets worse in our life. It spreads in our lives and in the lives of others. And it kills. And sick people need a doctor. And sin-sick people need a Savior. And Jesus is saying, I am the one who can make sin-sick people well again. 
What Jesus says, he didn't come to call the righteous, but sinners. He's not saying the Pharisees who are asking this question, the religious group that are asking this question, that they are somehow more righteous than the tax collectors and the other sinners. No, no, no. They're all sinners, but the Pharisees don't see it. What Jesus is insinuating is, if you can't, if you can't see that you need me, if you can't come to the realization that you need the doctor, that you need saving, if you think you're too righteous, then you can't repent. I've come not to call the righteous but sinners to repentance. That was not an encouraging word to the Pharisees. Don't worry, guys, you don't need saving. They do. Does that sound like Jesus? No. He called those same people a brood of vipers in other places. No, his point is this. You guys don't get it. And until you get that you're not righteous, you won't get it. That's what he wants us to see. If you think they are the sinners and not you, then you, you can't repent. To repent, you have to admit your sin. And Jesus came to call sinners to repentance, he says. You know, I hate going to the doctor. You like, they like going to the doctor? They like their favorite thing? Copay aside, I hate it. I don't like it. I've got insurance. Still don't like going to the doctor. I avoid it as much as I can. But if I get sick enough, or I'm miserable enough, that I know Tylenol or ibuprofen or anything like that's not going to do the trick. Sleep and orange juice isn't going to do the trick. Hot soup isn't going to do the trick. And this is just going to, at some point, I'm going to go to the doctor, right, so they can figure out what's going on, prescribe what I need, and get whatever I've got knocked out. If it's bad enough, I'll go, but I don't like to go. But if I, once I realize I need to go, I go. And to be saved, to become a Christian, to become a believer, you have to realize how bad off you are. We're all stubborn, like I am to the doctor. We're all stubborn about needing a Savior until we realize we need a Savior. Until God supernaturally reveals that to us, our need for Christ. You have to realize you're sick with sin. And Jesus and only Jesus heals sinners of their sin sickness. Only He has the cure. Only He has lived a sinless life. Only He has paid our sin debt on the cross. Only Jesus has risen from the dead to never die again. Only Jesus. Jesus and only Jesus can heal sinners, can save sinners. So he calls us to repentance. A change of mind that produces a change in direction that ultimately will produce a changed life. Jesus changes lives. That's what happens when you follow Jesus. He brings healing and wholeness. He makes us into people that God has designed us to be. He transforms us from the inside out. And that begins with repentance. And we continue in a life of repentance. As Jesus followers, as Christ followers, since we know that Jesus is the one who heals sinners, who saves sinners, the implication for us is that we too are to plead with people to trust Jesus and then trust Jesus to do the healing. Jesus says, I've come to call sinners to repentance. Well, we can't do it in the same way he can, but we do have a responsibility as his followers to call people to repentance, to call people to repent and believe. We don't call them in the same theological way that Jesus calls them, that God calls them. But we do extend to them the gospel and the offer of free grace. We can follow Jesus into pursuing sinners, welcoming and loving them, but we can't save them. Right? Only Jesus is the one that makes them well. Only Jesus is the one that can ultimately lead them in repentance. 
But we can share the gospel with them. We can plead with them. And, and we can pray for them. But we ultimately have to trust that it's Jesus that saves. That God is sovereign in the matter. That it's under his authority and under his realm. And it's, we're responsible to share. And we're responsible to pray. And we're responsible to plead. But God does the saving. And the truth is, though, when it comes to being a witness for Christ, even though God is the one who does the saving, he uses people who use real words to save people. That's the way he does it, right? That's his means. He uses people in the process, and we have to open our mouths, right? We can't love people into heaven. We can't serve them into heaven. We can't. We can't morally live a righteous life with them into heaven. You can't politically arm wrestle them into heaven. You can't argue or debate them into heaven. But you can do this. You can share the gospel with people. And then the Holy Spirit can use that to prick their heart, show them their need for Christ, grant them faith where they believe on the gospel, and they come to saving faith in Christ, and their life could be changed. But at some point, they got to hear the gospel. We are the way God does that. He shares the gospel through us. Through us. And this is why we're committed to sharing the gospel in this room. We, we call people to repent and believe, and we gather every, every week. And we trust Jesus with the results. And we need to be a people that invite people into this environment. Don't misunderstand me. To hear the gospel and experience gospel-shaped community and all those things. But we need to also share the gospel outside of this room. We can't just gear everything around seeing how many people we can fit in this little room. We're sure to fail. We have to go to people. I heard a pastor say one time he, com he compared the Sunday morning gathering to a football huddle, right? You go... Very few teams huddle anymore, but you huddle to call the play, right? They get on the field, and the offense huddles together, and they call the play, and maybe somebody dropped the pass in the last play, and the quarterback says, okay, man, I'll get you this time. Or somebody missed the block, and they say, man, I'm sorry. They kind of get encouraged, it's okay, you'll get them this time. Then they go out, and the play's called, and they run the play. Well, this is where we're, we're gathered, and you get a little encouragement from living on mission during the week, and you get lifted up a little bit, or you get confronted a little bit if that's what needs to happen. Whatever needs to happen, we're in the huddle, but at some point, we have to leave, and we've got to run the play. Heard that same pastor when he when he shared that story or that illustration. He said, he said, I forget the percentage, but it's like ninety percent or something like that or more of the miracles that we see recorded in the Book of Acts happened outside the assembly, the assembling together of the saints. Most of the miracles that we read about in Acts didn't happen when they were gathered together doing this. You all come, man, come to church with an expectant attitude. Man, I'm telling you, living on mission means going, leaving church with an expectant attitude. Because God's not just at work in a room. God wants to work in and through our lives and in our workplaces and in our neighborhoods and in our homes and in the grocery store and in the car and wherever we are and wherever we go. God wants to be at work doing miraculous things. But, but we have to be committed to living on mission. Only Jesus, though, can heal the sick. The question is, though, do we believe Jesus can and does heal spiritually sin sick? Do we think he can save our lost neighbor, family member, our friend that's agnostic, atheist? Do we believe enough to share the gospel, to try not to berate them with the gospel or church attendance, but to share the gospel with urgency and in love and and then just pray and pray and pray and ask God 
and ask God to save them? The call is simple, right? Follow me. And when, for Levi, he says he got up, left everything, and followed him. Think about it. He's in the middle of business. He's, 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 I don't know if he's a, they don't seem like he's at lunch. He's there, right? He's waiting for the next person to swindle. Jesus says, follow me. He just leaves it, walks away. Just leaves it. Whole livelihood. Left everything to follow him. He had a new authority in his life. Everything was going to be different from that point on. And it's a miracle of God that any sin sick person like me and like you would leave behind our desire to rule over our life and make our own decisions to follow Jesus as Lord. But that's what happens when we follow Jesus. And that's why we're willing to fish. It's not because it's never awkward. And it's not because nobody never says no. Don't talk to me about that. It's not because it's always easy. There's no work involved. It's because we've laid down our rights and we've left everything, or so we've said, to follow Jesus. We don't get a different way of following Jesus than Levi got. We're called to follow him the same way. Leaving everything, Jesus is the ruler and the Lord of our life, and we go and we do what he's called us to do. Part of following Jesus is to be a fisher of me. I believe Jesus saves sinners and I believe as Christ followers we have been enlisted into his mission and like Jesus we're to be pursuing people far from God lovingly welcoming them into God's family extending grace to them and we are to call them to repent and believe and trust Jesus to save them because he saves sinners. But I think we can do better. I think I can do better. What are some ways we can do better of living on mission? You know, I believe to get more evangelistic we got to get more social. Jesus was social. I don't know if he was an introvert or extrovert. That kind of misses the point. But he was where people are. Right? He rested. He got away from the crowds. He slept in the boat. He did those things. He pulled away and prayed. He did all that. He recharged. He was human. He is human and God. But at the same time, he... He was constantly engaging people and pouring himself out and looking for opportunities. He was... He was going to the wedding feast and he was going to this feast over at this tax collector's house and he was inviting people to where he was and he was, he was engaging people. He's at a, this is a party. He's where people are. And if we're going to reach people, we need to love people enough to get to know them, to build relationships with people that are not in the room, that are not under our roof. Like Levi, we need to throw some dinner parties. And like Jesus, we need to go to some. And corporately as a church, we have to give the unreached a vote. When we make decisions about our budget, about our ministries, about our facilities, about what we do and what we don't do, someone has to speak for the unreached, for the future, for the sheep that are not here yet. We have to be willing to ask the question, what is most likely to help us engage and reach our community? All of us have to be willing to ask that all the time. And sometimes that changes because we find out we're wrong and we have to go do this. Oh, maybe we do, and we're constantly, it's like, ah, that just seems like we're fooling with stuff a lot. So we're always trying to answer that question. And we ain't figured it out yet. But if we're not willing to ask the question, we need to quit and go home. Because there are other churches willing to ask the question. And they will reach people. 
And if we want to reach people, we have to constantly, weekly, daily, corporately ask that question. How are we most likely to best engage and reach our community with the gospel? I know sometimes it's tried this worth it. Here's the thing about mission. It's the easiest to get on board when you first begin to follow Jesus. That's when it's easiest. That's why Levi, I mean, you see him throwing that big party and he's got all his lost friends over and everybody's there. He'd just be, he's hot-hearted, man. He, just, he didn't know a lot, but he had met a man that he wanted to introduce people to. So he invited who he knew. Think back to your time when you first became a believer. Some of you, you were a teenager some of you are an adult, maybe you're a kid, but you couldn't wait to tell your mom and dad or a friend or a neighbor or a school. And, and I remember, I'd have witnessed to a lamppost. Probably did a few times. I think I probably have reached to more inanimate objects than I can think of. But you're just wanting to talk about it. And you're wanting to declare and you're wanting to, to share. And I remember one of the first times I shared the gospel with people, being in someone's yard, right? And there's two or three teenagers there sharing the gospel with them. I got to the end, I didn't know what to do. I've been, I knew what the gospel was. I've been taught how to share it, but I didn't have a clue. I didn't invite them to respond. So I did what I had seen other people do. I said, would you bow your head and close your eyes? <laughs> and two or three people in the yard bowed their head and closed their eyes. I was like, oh, okay. <laughs> Anybody like to trust Christ today? And they both looked up at me and said, oh, this is awkward. You know? And uh, yeah, man, when you first come to Christ, you're not kind of that spiritual mountaintop like Levi was. That's when it's easiest to live on mission. The longer you're in the club, the longer you're in the family, the more you tend to focus on the family. Right? And the, if we're not careful, the more indifferent we kind of get towards those far. Me too. All of us. And we have to be constantly remembering and reminding ourselves of what it was like when we first met. What it was like when the burden of sin was first lifted off our back. What it was like when we knew hell had felt so real and so inevitable and now it seemed like so gone. Because if we don't do that, if we don't recapture that regularly, we won't go that much. We have to constantly be reminding ourselves of what it means to follow Jesus and what it was like to follow let me ask you this morning. Have you, first of all, have you ever chosen to follow Jesus? Have you turned from your sin? As Jesus says, called, be called to repentance. Turn from your sin and embrace Christ as Lord and Savior. And if you're a believer this morning, whether that was a year ago or whether that was five years ago or whether that was 55 years ago or 70 years ago or wherever it was, like me, 20 or so years ago, wherever that Are you as passionate about seeing people come to know Christ as you was then? And if not, would you would you ask God this morning to give you that kind of 